Good morning. As I mentioned earlier, I encourage you to open in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 11. That's where we'll read from in just a moment. But I want to reflect back on uh, Easter Sundays in, in my past. We'll celebrate next week. I, I just remember so vividly being excited to wake up Easter morning. Uh, going to church, of course, as a preacher's kid. And there was usually pastels laid out for us to wear, you know, to church that morning. I remember Easter egg hunts that would happen. But what I don't remember are the Sundays that happened before Easter Sunday. I don't know about your family. Maybe uh, Palm Sunday was a big deal in your household. Maybe you didn't celebrate Easter at all, depending on if you didn't go to church or certain churches you may have gone to. Next week, I'm excited to share, but I got to tell you, I don't remember the triumphal story. I don't remember having palm branches that I would wave. Others of you may have had those experiences. That just wasn't my experience. As I got to think about that this week, about how we have full churches on Easter Sunday, and sometimes Palm Sunday is not something we focus on as much, I I think there's something to that, don't you? There's something about being able to celebrate that we enjoy, but, but focused on a week of suffering ahead and what the cross had to offer on Good Friday. I think it's a challenge. And so I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But that's what I want to struggle with a little bit this morning is what is Palm Sunday? Why is this so important for us to remember and to celebrate uh, as Christians? Let's do that this morning. But let's pray together as we open God's Word. Father, this morning, as we talk about this entry into Jerusalem, as we remind ourselves of a story that led Jesus on a path toward the cross, would you remind us again of our calling to pick up our own cross? God, some of us are real clear about what our cross is. Maybe it's a a struggle we are continuing to have or we fall into just this week. Others of us may not be clear on what that means. Our life seems to be really good and, and, and it's easy to celebrate Easter this year. But God, wherever we find ourselves, I pray that you would meet us in that place and the story would guide us in our lives toward the next best step toward you. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives, and that the cross might be our path as a people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Mark chapter 11, I want to begin reading in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Well, when they had brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Jesus is a a Jewish man who grew up going to synagogue. He he was 
raised in a context in Palestine, the land that had been promised to Abraham that's under the rule of another nation. Israel's not in charge. Caesar is in charge. The Roman Empire is over this land. And that has to be disappointing to these people who had been promised land long, long ago, and now they are now out of exile, yes, but they're still living under enemy rule. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the midst of this context. And it's important for us to know that because there is another king on the throne. Tiberius Caesar is the emperor over all the Roman Empire at this time. And there are some rulers that are ruling over the area that Jesus is in. Herod is one of those rulers. Pontius Pilate is another one you might know from the story as it progresses through Holy Week leading up to Easter. But as Jesus rides in, there are expectations that the Jewish people have. And a lot of that comes from the prophets that had promised a day when God would return and do something big for his people. And there were mentions and hopes about a Messiah that would one day show up. And I'm sure there were many different expectations about what that word Messiah meant. It just means anointed one. What, what would the anointed one look like? What can we expect when the Messiah shows up? And there had been many pretenders who'd showed up on the scene before Jesus came. And Rome had done away with them. And long after Jesus left, there would be others who would pretend to be the Messiah. But Jesus comes, and he comes with the expectations of the Jewish people who were high that God would send the anointed one to usher in this new world that God had promised. One of those passages I want to point to this morning. It comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and a dream that Daniel had. This is what he describes in that dream. It's Daniel 7 in verse 13. He says, In my vision at night I looked, And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Now you noticed a phrase at the beginning of that, didn't you? The son of man. And so they had these hopes about a son of man who would come, who would establish his reign, a dominion that won't pass away. So I'm sure there are hopes that some ruler is going to come in. Maybe he'll take over the Romans again and they'll be in charge in the land God had promised. And it's interesting because right before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, in the chapter before, in Mark chapter 10, he picks up on the phrase from Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, just one back from Mark 11. It's Mark 10, verse 45. These are the words of Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is right before he rides into the triumphal entry as he enters into Jerusalem for his last week on earth before his death. And as he says those words, Son of Man, I'm just sure there are some who are connecting back to Daniel 7, don't you think? I mean, he had healed people, done all kinds of miraculous things, taught as one who had authority. And here he describes himself, he refers to himself by the Son of Man. Maybe they're thinking, this is the time we're going to Jerusalem at Passover, and this will be the last time we'll celebrate Passover under enemy rule. And so when he comes into town, there are expectations. And Jesus rides into town, but he doesn't ride in as you would expect a king to ride into town, does he? 
But before we go there and talk about how he wrote in, I want to talk about our culture and how it connects with that first century culture. Because those Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who was a victor, who was a hero, who was a champion, who was a, maybe a warrior of some kind, someone who would be in charge, a great leader. And we live in a culture where we celebrate those who win and are victors as well, don't we? Now, if you were going to bet on a Messiah who would be the victor, the, the one in charge who would take over, uh, Jesus would be a good selection, right? I mean, just think about the things that he did. He can feed a, a, a small army, right, or, or a large army. 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. That's important for a military leader to have, right? He's able to heal the lame. That comes in handy as well in battle, doesn't it? You know, somebody's wounded, well, Jesus can just speak a word and it's done with. And he's also able to raise the dead. It doesn't matter how many the Roman army has. If Jesus can keep raising these people, they're going to win eventually, right? So if you're paying any attention to what Jesus has been doing in his ministry, you're thinking, this has got to be the guy. And then Jesus rides in. But he doesn't write in looking like the victor that they might have expected. Daniel 7 doesn't quite explain it. But this desire we have to win, it's clear from an early age we have this desire to back the winning team, to be a win winner ourselves, isn't it? I mean, just yesterday we were on the soccer field at Celebration Park, which, by the way, that is something, right? I mean, there are kids all over the place, and, and our kids were playing soccer. We've got a three-year-old girl, Addison, who was playing in her first game, and she scored a goal uh, on the wrong goal, but she scored a goal uh, and had a great time doing it. And, uh, but my son, he was playing in the game after, and I'm coaching for him. And it's amazing. At this level of soccer, they're not supposed to keep score. The you know, referee doesn't keep score. Coaches don't. But I'll tell you what, those kids knew exactly what the score was, Right? The parents were keeping score with tally marks. And, you know, we get caught up in this because we're taught from an early age. We want to win. We want to be on the winning team. And the Jewish people were no different. They wanted to be on the winning team. And it looks like they're backing the right champion, doesn't it? This must be the Messiah. You would think the same thing, too. But then in Mark 11, he doesn't quite write in the way we'd expect him to. Now, Jesus isn't the only one writing in to Jerusalem this week. This is the Passover story. All kinds of people are coming to the city. But there was another ruler, another king, you might say, named Pilate, who would have been making a similar journey into the city that same week. Because Pilate's job during the Passover was to make sure that peace was maintained so that Tiberius Caesar wouldn't get upset uh, at the helm in Rome. And so he's going to ride into Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea, about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. And he's going to be riding in, and you can bet there's some similar things that happened to Jesus that would happen to Pilate in that story. You would have probably uh, some people that would be singing their hosannas, right? Save us. Like, we're grateful for you, Pilate. You're in charge of us, and we're grateful for the peace you've given. There might be people who would lay down palm branches or lay down cloaks. These are signs of a king who are entering in. So there are similarities between Pilate entering in and Jesus entering in. But there is a stark difference that we see in the story as well. Do you notice the animal he's riding in on? A colt. A donkey. Or as the King James Version would say, well, I'm not going to go there this morning. I mean, this is not the animal you expect a king to ride in on, right? Maybe a white war horse. That would be the way to come into a battle and start the revolution, right? No, this is a colt, a donkey, a, an agrarian animal. 
not exactly the animal that's fit for a king. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's doing a bit of street theater, a bit of irony. He's trying to say to Rome, yeah, you've got your power, you've got your weapons, you've got all that you need, but the kind of kingdom that I'm setting up is far different than the kind of kingdom that Rome is in charge with. Yeah, you might have expectations about what a winner looks like, but when Jesus rides into town, it's going to look far different. So he's welcomed by this crowd that sings their hosannas, but he borrows this donkey. He's on a borrowed donkey, and a week later he'll have to borrow a tomb. Not exactly the king you'd expect to ride into town. Not exactly the picture that Daniel 7 describes of one like a son of man. It's meant to be a humorous story. It's meant to kind of poke and fun at Caesar and those who are riding in in different ways. It's meant to be humorous. Mother Teresa won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, several years ago. And a reporter asked her, you know, with these accolades, you're not used to receiving this kind of award and these accolades. You, you do all the service without any fanfare. How are you going to keep your head from puffing up when, when you're getting something like this award? She said in response, do you think the donkey that Jesus rode into town thought that the songs and accolades were meant for him? I think that's a good reminder of this story, don't you? Sometimes we think we're the one on the horse, but really, we're the donkey. And God's used donkeys in the past. He's spoken through them in the past, right? But, but I think it's important for us to know our place in this story, right? We're not the hero, but the one who is king rides in. And any way we can bless him and his kingdom, we do that. And I don't get all, the, all this about go ask for a colt and they'll give it to you. I mean, that seems problematic, right? Who would just give their colt saying the Lord needs it, right? But God takes care of things. God takes care of us in the same way. Well, Jesus rides in on this donkey, and, and, and if you're keeping score, it looks like he's losing this battle. Pilate seems to be a little bit more in charge in this scene, doesn't he? And I, I go back to the question I asked at the beginning when I think about this, because if you're back in someone in the story, it wouldn't be Jesus. It might be Pilate. It might be Caesar. Rome was far more in power than these peasants in Israel. But this Jesus claims he's king, and I think this is part of the reason we we have our churches so full on Easter, but sometimes not on Palm Sunday. So we know how to celebrate Easter. We know how to appreciate forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. We're going to get to celebrate that next week. We're just not so sure how to celebrate Palm Sunday and Good Friday because we're used to winners and competition. We're not so used to a king who rides in on a donkey. So for the past five years, I've been wearing this necklace with a cross on it. It was a gift to me the day that Maddox was born from Maddox, which he's a good gift giver. He got it from the, from the womb, I guess, right? All right, Holly gave it to me. But it was a gift from him, and it's meant so much to me. And there's something about wearing this symbol around my neck that's a reminder to me at all times of the way I'm called to live. Many of you probably have crosses that you're wearing, maybe on a necklace or, or maybe a tattoo. Don't show them right now. I know how that goes. Uh, but maybe you've got reminders on your wall at home or other places. The cross has become the main symbol of Christianity. But you know what it would have been like for someone to wear a cross around their neck in the first century? It would have looked something like this. It's an electric chair, right? I mean, think about the oddity that this is. We wear this symbol not thinking about what it would have meant in the first century, but the cross was a place where criminals were killed. It was a place where those who were tre treasonous to Rome, made sure they were put up on a cross so that others would see a sign that if you mess with Rome, this is what will happen to you. 
And we wear this around as if it's not a scandal, as if it's a small thing. But from the very beginning, the apostles have been trying to remind us, this is a scandal, this story. It doesn't make sense. Jesus doesn't come out as the hero that we hear about in most of our stories. In fact, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul talks about the cross. 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 18. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then if you drop down to verse 22, 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And Paul's trying to say at the beginning of his letter, you all are committing to a symbol and a story that's going to sound so foolish to the world around you. But if you don't understand the story, if you've not given your life to this, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Even if after you've given your life to the story, it's odd. We serve a Messiah who didn't take over, who didn't have all this power on earth. He, he died. He walked the path of suffering. He, he suffered a great deal on our behalf. And that's not exactly the story that you tell your grandkids about your life. Not the suffering story. You, you tell the story about resurrection. But each year we're reminded on Palm Sunday that we serve a Messiah who wasn't just resurrected. He had to die and be buried before he could come out of the tomb. And I think it's vital that we remember this. Paul writes a little bit later or in a different book in Galatians about the cross. Galatians 3, he writes a few other words about this. Galatians 3 verse 13. It says there, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Or hung on a tree is another way to translate that. That's back from the Old Testament. It's clear. If you, if you hang on a cross, if you hang on a pole, you're, you're cursed. But the very one who took on our sin, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, God himself, fully God, fully man was willing to die on our behalf and take on a cross for every single one of us who are here today and everyone who's ever lived. See, the cross is a scandal. It's a stumbling block for, for those. They're, to Jews, they were looking for something else. To those who were the Gentiles, they, they would look for something else. In our culture, we look for something far different than someone who ends up dying. But here is Jesus. And the same crowd that yells, Hosanna, the week before, just a week later, is going to be yelling from their same lips, crucify him, crucify him. What kind of Messiah is this? Not exactly the one we'd expect when we read Daniel chapter 7, but if, if you look at Isaiah 53, it's a story about Jesus that looks a little different. I think that's the story he's picking up on. So you'll see on the screen right here, uh, this is a, a, a graffiti, the oldest graffiti we can find from the first century in the Roman Empire. Or uh, not the first century, but close to. It's a picture, uh, it's actually kind of a political cartoon making fun of Christians in the early centuries. It's what you can see, kind of a guy or, with a donkey head who's, who's on a cross. And the words there actually say Alexamenos, which is a good Roman name. Alexamenos worships his God. It's a, it's a word of irony. It's a word of trying to mock Christians to say, do you guys realize who you worship? You worship the one who died on a cross. How could you think that's God at all? Our gods are much more powerful than that. Look around us. Look at Rome. We're, we're in charge. And you worship this donkey of a man? 
Why would you do such a thing? And so when we're mocked, and, and, and at times in, in our culture, we don't feel as if, as if the Christian story is a story that's honored in the same way it has been in other places. This is not a new thing. From the very first few centuries, there have been people who've tried to mock Christians to say, how could you worship such a God? And when we wear these crosses around our neck, that's what we're proclaiming. Yeah, we worship the guy who died. And there's more to that story. He's the God who's resurrected, but he died first. He he went, underwent all that shame on our behalf. Translated, this is basically, those Christians, they're just a bunch of fools. They worship the one who died on behalf of the Romans. Caesar's more powerful. He got rid of him on his own. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the story you've given your life to. In his memoir, uh, or in book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Christian author Eugene Peterson tells a story that's one of my favorite stories. He was called Gene as a boy growing up in a Christian household. And he lived in a city that was a small city. And all the kids at school knew one another. And so when he was walking to school each day, there was a guy at school that was the school bully. His name was Garrison Johns. And Garrison, every day when he was walking to school, Gene would pass him and he'd say, There goes Gene, the Jesus sissy. And that, you know, kind of hurts a boy over and over again to have that every day. And his mom told him, no, 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 we follow Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, you're called to act like Jesus. But that only works so long for a 10-year-old boy, right? So finally one day he'd had enough of it, and Eugene didn't know if he could take him or not, but one day on the schoolyard he's he's, he's taunting him again, Garrison is, and, and he takes Garrison to the ground and he starts pummeling with his right fist and his left fist. It's a wintry day with snow on the ground, and he recounts the snow being turned to a red crimson color. And all of a sudden he wakes up kind of out of what he's doing, realizing mom's going to kill me if I kill him, right? And and so he's waking up to what he's doing, and in the midst of it, the, the, the kids are all cheering him on. And, and he says, uh, say uncle, and I'll let you up. And Garrison wouldn't say uncle. So he says what he says could only be inspired by the Holy Spirit that day. Confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I'll let you go. <laughs> and in his book, he writes, and Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. And we love stories like that because we love stories where bullies get what they deserve. But the story we celebrate is far different from that one. Not where anyone's compelled to follow a story or forced to follow a story. In our worst moments in Christian history, we've been a part of that. But in our best moments, we've been willing to suffer on others' behalf, to take on violence to our own bodies. That's what Jesus does. To redeem and to save others who are in the midst of that pain. One of my good friends is the preacher at the Otter Creek Church of Christ in Nashville. His name is Josh Graves, and he tells the story about being at Michigan State University for an interfaith conference. There were all kinds of people from different faiths, from the Muslim faith, from uh, Buddhists. There were Sikhs. There were uh, from the Baha'i faith, Jews. They were all together. They were asking some of the hardest questions about world religions. And Josh and his friend were, were there as representatives of the Christian faith. So there were all kinds of questions about war and poverty and suffering and how can a good God allow suffering to happen. All these questions that happen on college campuses they were struggling with in the midst of this. And, and many were telling different stories. And, and finally at the end of the conference, Dave Keller, Josh's friend, got up and he was asked to speak on behalf of Christians. Why is it that you've believed this story? Why is it this is the story you've given your life to? 
And Dave told the story about when the gospel came alive for him and when he made a commitment to the story. He told the story about seeing as a child a made-for-television movie called The Patsy. The Patsy's star was, uh, uh, let me get this right, star was Sammy Davis Jr., and it was the story about these guys in an army regiment, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. was the, was the only uh, black guy in the, in the regiment. And he's in this store, and he's getting made fun of, and, and all kinds of problems are coming this way. He feels like he's on the outside of, of this regiment. And they try to make fun of him. They send him to the commissary, and they say, go buy a left-handed monkey wrench. And he, he goes and tries to do that, and the guy at the commissary makes fun of him. And, and then they send him to go buy striped paint, and he tries to go buy striped paint. They're, they're just prank after prank, and finally they get to the greatest prank they've been planning on. They take this grenade, of course they're working in the army, and they, they, they deactivate it, but he doesn't know that. And so the scene comes, he's walking into the, 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 the cafeteria with his tray, and the, and the guys all of a sudden take this grenade and throw it into this crowd of people. And everyone scatters screaming, but Sammy Davis Jr. runs over to it, dives onto the grenade and says, I'll save you, I'll protect you, while everyone else is running away from it. And Dave recounts that story and says, that was when I first learned the gospel. What I learned was the story of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus and all who follow him are called to love those, whether they're their friends and their enemies, to give up their lives on the, for the sake of others. That's a compelling story. Not the story that we hear in our culture so often of trying to be a part of a redemptive violence story or trying to say we can be the heroes who take on the world. No, the story of Jesus is one where we give up ourselves, where we, we actually follow the path of the cross, trusting that God will resurrect us one day. That's the good news. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. And there's a lot of good things to celebrate with Easter. I'm so excited about next week. I'm excited about the message that I get to share with you. But the cross is not just some way we receive salvation and then we celebrate the empty tomb and that's it. The cross is actually the way of life that Jesus taught us to live. It's not just that he did it so that we don't have to. When we wear this cross, it's a reminder that we're being willing, we were willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus no matter what it may mean. Some of us have bear, bore, bore, we've, we've, how do you say that, borne a cross. We, we've bared a cross that is we, too much than we can bear ourselves. We need a community to walk besides because we just can't do this alone. That's what this church family is about. It's not that we're all a perfect group of people, but to say we need each other to get through this life together because we struggle. For some of you, this Easter is going to be an important Easter. Because this last year, maybe you've lost a loved one. And you need the reminder of the empty tomb so that you can be reminded that God is still going to resurrect things in the end and restore it back. Or maybe you found out about a chronic illness. Or maybe you've been living much longer than a year with a chronic illness. Maybe this Easter is a reminder that you're going to get a resurrected body one day. That one day things are going to be far different or maybe there's been a sin struggle in your life. And, and maybe you need Easter more than ever before because you need to be reminded that every sin that, that, that's been committed, Jesus has, has, has taken that on himself, that he's taken that curse. He's forgiven us of our sins, and we get to live a new life through him. But the only way we get to celebrate big at Easter is if we acknowledge the depth of the cross and the suffering of Jesus as well. 
Because if we think our sin is just a small thing that God has to forgive, we'll have a little bit of joy at Easter. But if you acknowledge the depth of your sin, how far you've been broken and how far you've broken others' lives as well, that you've been a part of the brokenness of this world, all of a sudden you realize that Easter is a huge thing and the celebration that comes with realizing new life is huge, isn't it? And that's what I hope for us. It's not that we just celebrate Easter without celebrating Good Friday, without realizing what Jesus gave up, but that we realize what Jesus was willing to give up, that we bear our cross with him so that we can also celebrate resurrection in a whole new way this coming Sunday. So how many of you are in this week? Into reminding ourselves of the story of the cross. In on committing to the symbol that characterizes our faith and not just letting Jesus go to it, but committing ourselves to it as well. Let's commit to that so that we can commit to the open tomb, the empty tomb next Sunday. Let's pray together as we close our time in the Word. God, we thank you so much for the story of the cross. God, I thank you that this story of the cross doesn't just allow a place in for those who've had a perfect life or who seem to win at everything in culture and in everything in their lives. God, for those who are broken, who feel like they're not enough, God, the people who are at the end of their rope, those are the people who are blessed. That's what your Beatitudes say, God. The poor in spirit are blessed. And that's upside down in our world. We, we want to be with the winners, God. But, but your son Jesus walked beside those who struggled. And we want to confess our own struggle this morning. God, some of us need to confess a struggle with sin. That just need, We need to be freed of that, God, and have your Holy Spirit live in us and, and move in us to, to bring forgiveness and redemption to us. Others of us have had sin happen to us. With things that aren't our fault, people have caused harm to us, God, and we need good news. We need a community that will walk with us to new life and help us as we struggle along. God, others of us are in a great place this morning, and thinking about the cross is really not what we came in for, God, but we are reminded that good news comes with the bad news, that it was the cross that comes first, that Friday precedes Sunday. God, this week as we look forward to Easter, help us to live into the suffering of the world, to pray with those who mourn. We realize you're a God who comforts those who mourn. God, so we thank you for the God you are, that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he was scarred and for, for our iniquities, God. He was, he was beaten so that our sins could be forgiven. And we give you all glory and praise and honor for, for the plan that you've had, God, and the way it continues to bring life today. I thank you so much for Jesus, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.